Though I have no direct evidence of this, I have a private suspicion that one of the reasons the Klingons would have such a strong presence and plot significance throughout the course of Deep Space Nine is because of this episode and how well it did. Pretty much everyone loved this episode. It was a wonderful confluence of coincidence. The original episode actually had effectively nothing to do with the Klingons. And then they were like, well, why don't we bring in the Klingons? And then, near as I can tell, although again, I do not have direct evidence of this, someone basically was flinging out ideas, and one of the ideas that was flung out was, why don't we get the three Klingons on, and we'll get them on board? Those would, of course, be Kang, Koloth, and Kor. Now, <laughs> the funny thing is, all three of these characters are relatively legendary, but mostly for their significance in establishing the Klingons as a race, than anything else. In fact, funny story, it was always originally supposed to be core, core, and core across the three episodes of, uh, let's see, Errand of Mercy, uh, Day of the Dove, and Trial of Tribulations, or not Trial of Tribulations, uh, The Trouble of Tribbles. I get those two confused sometimes, for obvious reasons. But for various reasons, they couldn't get a hold of John Colicos back in the day, back when they were actually recording the original series, so they brought on William Campbell to play Koloth, and then Michael Ansara to play Kang. Now, all three of these have significance to Star Trek history. They are functionally the three main Klingons we had in the original series. There were others, but most of the other Klingons were either bit parts or literally not on camera. We just, you know, there's a Klingon ship out there, or they died. <laughs> What's also funny is the extended works, including the animated series, if we count that, uh, as well as several novels, have continued the story of, of several of these people. In fact, uh, Kang, I want to say, it was Kang or Koloth, I actually can't remember which, forgive me, um, would, would actually show up in an episode after this one, even though he dies in this one, spoiler alert, because he's in flashback over in Voyager. So you can see how there's this kind of, for lack of a better term, pedigree with these three actors in their presentation. It is thus absolutely horrible, and I didn't actually know uh, this happened to all of them. I knew John Colicos died, of course, but I didn't know that all three of them have since died uh, as of five years ago as, as of this statement. That's horrible. I mean, it makes sense. They were old. In fact, uh, most of them had actually bowed out of acting in general when they were act asked to come back and do this episode. Funnily enough, I think they nailed it, consider, which is impressive considering all the circumstances. But I want to take a moment uh, to talk about John Colicos really quick as well. So funnily enough, and I'll probably talk about this if we ever get the original series, Core is actually named that because of William Shatner. In the script, it was supposed to be Core. And if you pay attention in this episode, they kind of vary the pronunciation kind of in between Core and Core because the two are actually pretty similar to each other. But what I also like about Kor in this episode is that he was originally supposed to die. Now, I don't think this is spoiling. Kor will be appearing in future episodes of Deep Space Nine. I won't say anything about details, but I think that is to the benefit of the show overall. I think he's a good addition. And the only reason that happened is because Calicos insisted that Kor has to live. If this is this grand tragedy Shakespearean thing they got going on, Kor has to survive. He has to be the Ishmael, I believe was his direct quote. And what's funny is, I, I wasn't able to find any information in anything I've got explaining why it is they decided to buckle and let Kor live. But I'm really glad they did, because Kor also has one other interesting thing about him. 
And I wonder if this is par partially related. In fact, John Colicos himself wondered this too, now that I think about it. Core is the first Klingon. No, I don't mean in lore. <laughs> of course I don't mean that. No, I mean Core. there actually is a first Klingon in lore. I can't remember his name. He's part of the Klingon mythos. But Core was the first real Klingon we, the audience, ever saw. It's actually weird to think about. And again, I'll talk about this if we ever get to TOS. In historical context, given how Klingons are basically like the number two or three species among Star Trek, right up there with Vulcans, uh, that it wasn't until Day of the Dove that Klingons existed. And they were just sort of introduced out of nowhere, and also consequently were introduced in a way that implied that the Federation and Starfleet had already had interaction with them many times before. And, you know, they would, of course, be fleshed out whether for better or worse is up to your opinion. I'm not willing to lay judgment on that. But they, they were fleshed out over the course of the years into becoming the Klingon people. Now, I personally think that Klingons, just to talk about this briefly, sometimes have the problem that the Vulcans do. Because I think that too many writers, well, I shouldn't say too many, but there are several writers who just don't understand the species. Now, you're going to get that with, with shows like Star Trek, where you have dozens of different writers, some of whom are basically sending in scripts and then having it rewritten. I mean, I've talked about this process over the TNG side of things. This is still true as of DS9. This will still be true as of Enterprise. You know, that po policy didn't get really changed until much more recently uh, in the history of television development. So you get some people who look at Vulcans and say, well, they're emotionless. But that's not true. That doesn't get the nuance or subtlety or any any shadings of what a Vulcan actually is. And then some people, uh, you know, some writers will look at the Klingons and say, they're warriors, which again, just doesn't get across what exactly the Klingon people are. The idea of total cultural obsession with warrior culture is something that, in my opinion, is doing a disservice to the Klingons as a people. It turns what is effectively an actual developed race, at least sometimes, into a race of hats. And I, I don't like that. So I think we have a little bit better presentation of the Klingons here. Which brings me to my next point. Um, I love the idea that Odo is the kind of person who is capable of dealing with Klingons. He actually flat out says, you know, this is a Klingon afternoon. So you can tell based on his performance, credit to Rene Bergenois, that he is, he's dealt with this kind of thing before. It's just like, oh, all right, there's Klingons I gotta deal with again. He knows how to do it. He handles core magnificently. He's like, all right, shut off the power. It's okay. You won, grabs the bottle. You're good. You can go and join, join the celebrations now. And Kor's like, excellent. I also love that Kor is portrayed as a slavering drunk because he's not. No, seriously. Core is basically, I hate to use this phrase again, the Columbo of this episode, and of the Klingon trio in general. Core is the one who appears to be slovenly drunk stupid, but he's, he's not. I mean, he's, he's slovenly and he's drunk, but he is not stupid. In fact, he pays very keen and close attention to everything going on around him pretty much continuously, and immediately and correctly deduces things multiple times throughout the episode. He has absolutely no trouble keeping up. And I think it's no surprise that the one who was quietly, you know, basically, if I was to use it like a, a Zelda kind of a thing, he would be Wisdom of the trio. With uh, Koloff being Courage and Kang being Power. If I, if I had to divide it up that way. 
I know that's a weird comparison. I don't know how many of you watch or play, watch, wow, how many of you play Zelda? But I think that's a good way to difference out their particular specialities. That especially comes true in some of Dax's scenes later, but I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, so let's rewind a second. So Odo puts Kang in the drunk tank. And I found myself wondering, and I know this is just the setting builder in me, but I look at this like, what would Klingon customers be like? Like, wouldn't that be awful? Now, Klingon culture, which I will do a much deeper dive of in the future when it becomes more relevant, probably on TNG, I'm thinking. Uh, I haven't 100% decided when I'm going to do that deep dive into Klingon culture. It needs to be discussed at some point. All I'm going to say right now is Klingon culture exists in a continuous pseudo-Darwinian nature. Not a literal Darwinian nature, but it can bleed over into that based on circumstances. There's a, a natural gravitation towards what I like to mentally think of as fake honor. Fake honor is political brownie points, functionally. Uh, it is how well you are perceived, how much clout you have, how much influence you have amongst the group, amongst the societal norm for what, whoever's in charge and whoever's around you. And I know that sounds like a weird statement, but if you actually look at the episodes that are properly written about the Klingons, in TNG especially, as well as DS9, you see that the Klingon culture is immensely political. Probably one of the most politically char uh, politically driven cultures we see across Star Trek, which is saying something. Now, I bring all that up because, like, a Klingon customer basically expects to challenge, you know, assuming they're not an idiot, they expect to challenge the the person selling them or the, the product or service and say, you, <laughs> and they expect to be challenged back. You have to more or less literally prove your worth to sell this to me, is kind of the mentality, because that's how Klingons interact with each other. Now, obviously not all Klingons do that, but you could just see that happening, right? I bet you could just picture it. Ah, oh, you will sell this to me for half price, or else I will flay the tongue from your body and tie it around your ankle and then use it as a bottle and... Right? Okay, maybe not that far, but you get it, right? I will eat your heart! Huh? And what that Klingon is expecting is either for them to cower, in which case they win, or for them to push back, in which case that other person has now earned some of their respect. And they'll probably reward them, quote-unquote, with increased business. I'll go back to that merchant, because they're, worth, they're honorable. Now, the reason I call that fake honor, and again, we'll do a deep dive later, is because in my mind, it isn't actually honor. Honor is, it could be replaced with almost any other word that, that functions as a currency and it would still apply in the exact same way. There are precious few Klingons who think in terms of actually being honorable, as in doing something that is the right thing or the correct thing as, as an intangible benefit, uh, rather than the tangible realities of pragmatism. No, what, what the, what the Klingon honor usually is, is Currency, <laughs> just to, to put it as bluntly as possible, just an intangible currency. What is your current honor level? Like, we could, if we put this in RPG terms, I've actually thought many times about an RPG where Klingons literally have an honor rating and your interactions change it, which changes how other people interact with you as far as the Klingon culture. Anyways, you know, that's, that's basically your honor level, and it can go up and it can go down. So, <laughs> I like to think that most people especially in the earlier days when the Klingons first started reaching out to international trade, didn't know any of this. And were just like, oh my god, and thus 
I, I have to wonder how exactly the Klingon external economy functions at all. Like, internal economy, sure. They all know the rules. They all play by the rules. But then an, a Klingon goes to bargain with, oh, I don't know, a Ferengi named Quark. And Quark's just like, Ugh. And all Quark knows to do is to call the feds. Or in this case, Odo. Anyways, enough diverging about Klingon customers. So, he puts him in the drunk tank, and then Koloth shows up, and is kind of awesome. I love the, the, the directing of the scene, by the way. Odo is like, eh, I don't know, sits down. And then you just see the shock on his face. Because he knows someone is there, and he is shocked that someone has snuck into his office. He's like, how did you get in here? I am Koloth. That doesn't answer my question. Yes, it does. I like that. That was good stuff. That was good stuff. Um, and then we're going to skip forward a little bit, because Dax, Dax's reaction to uh, each of the Klingons as she interacts with them is good stuff. This is when I want to really give praise to Terry Farrell. Now, in no way do I want to sound like Terry Farrell's a bad actress. Quite the contrary, actually. I think she does a really good job, given how relatively early in her career DS9 was. I also think that she wasn't given a lot of opportunities to do much. An unfortunate problem on Star Trek in general when decent actors aren't given a lot of breathing room. See Garrett Wong, or Robert Beltran, or Gates McFadden, arguably even... Um, oh, God... It's so hard for me to rattle off names in general. Um, LeVar Burton. You know, hell, Michael Dorn didn't even have a chance to really stretch for a while over on TNG, right? It's not like these actors can't act. Quite the contrary. <laughs> Pretty much all of them have proven their salt. But too often the writers don't give them a chance to stretch. And that's what I like about this episode with regards to Judzia Dax. Because we get to see her really act a nice variety of different ways. She gets to really stretch as an actress. And I think she does a good job of basically carrying the episode. One of my favorite little tidbits is when she has a little discussion with Kira. See, she's released from the Blood Oath, and you can just see on her face this is absolutely tearing her up, like absolutely horribly, and she can't deal with it. And Kira just, as soon as Kira realizes what's going on, she cuts through all the bullcrap like that. Which is very Kira. And she... She sits down with her, and she's like, all right, look, who are you planning to kill? And Kira's only argument, and I found this amusing, Kira's only argument was, that's not your fight. That was Curzon's fight, not yours. I'm not going to do yet another discussion of the Trill here, because this would get into the more metaphysical side of the discussion. Klingons tend to believe very strongly in concepts of the intangible, like honor, I mentioned earlier, you know, fake honor, but also things like the soul, or oaths, right? Uh, we've actually already seen this in TNG with, uh, oh, I can't think of the name of the episode, the, the exchange mission episode where Riker goes and board the Klingon ship. The Klingons place tremendous value on the value of an oath. You gave your oath, ergo, that has to be done. It's an intangible, but it's important. But how much does that apply to a trill? That gets into a massive murky area, and it's no wonder that so many people argue rather strongly, this is not your fight, Jadzia Dax, because this was Curzon's. And yet, as we have discussed, the memories are quite intact. She has... <laughs> this is not the first time this has come up, but I think this is the first time this really matters. I've always had the impression that trill, joined trill, have what is effectively perfect memory, if not of their own current existence, then of the existences of the previous hosts. 
despite the enormous amount of time that has passed in some cases, they have crystal clear memory of events that happened 80 years ago, right? And that is, that's pretty impressive in its own right. And that clear and concisive memories will seriously affect you. I mean, memory is one of the, the, if not the, most important thing in defining who and what you are. And the only reason I say if not the, or if the, is because we don't actually know. That's a matter that's still being debated in real life today. Even within the confines of fiction, we usually don't have a definitive answer for this. Let me, let me try and explain this in a slightly different way. Say you're Bob. Bob's like, doo -doo 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 -doo. And suddenly, you die, but your memories are preserved perfectly. And you remember being killed by Evil Bob. I'm really good with naming things, you guys. Evil Bob has killed you. And you remember that incident and all the things that led up to that betrayal perfectly. Or rather, that memory is preserved perfectly. Then that memory is put into, functionally, a completely new person. How do you think that will affect them? I mean, they could intellectually say, that was not me. And yet, they could close their eyes and see Evil Bob, and the laughing, and the joking, and then the stab, and then the pain, and then the death, because that memory was perfectly preserved and transferred forward into you. I would say... Regardless of the nature of who and what an identity is, which is a massive murky thing I don't want to get into, I would say that without hesitation, that kind of a, of a precise memory would significantly alter someone's uh, perspectives or opinions on a matter. Which brings me to my next point. Dax tells a wonderful story about the albino. And I want to give huge credit to the writers on this point, because this story manages to hit hard to a Klingon just as hard as it would be to a human, as in us, the audience actually watching this. Obviously, to us, the idea of this horrible atrocity of murdering in cold blood three newborn children, three young children who were complete innocents, is atrocious. It's disgusting. But to a Klingon, it is similarly disgusting for what is effectively a different reason. And I like, you know, because of the dishonor involved, because of the uh, lack of ability to do anything about it. Let me put this another way. If the albino had walked up to a young man, Koloth's son, and said, I challenge you to a duel to the death, and fought him in fair and honorable combat and killed him, that would be a completely different matter. We as humans would still probably be bothered by that because of our sensibilities being different from a Klingon's. But a Klingon would not be as bothered by that as much thanks to, as Dax points out, their courting of death. You know, you treat it like a lover is an excellent phrase, really. Because Klingons really do are just a little bit too accepting of death, uh, in my honest opinion. And I actually agree with some statements that are made about the Klingon Empire in Season 7 about this. But again, we'll get there, we'll get there. By contrast, however... To be killed with no chance to defend yourself, with no chance to even be aware of the attack, just as part of a petty vengeance scheme. Someone who was a non-combatant, which is usually a big deal to Klingons. Someone who was, I mean, Klingons can lose themselves in bloodlust, but even to a Klingon, killing a non-combatant is generally con considered to be dishonorable. So, and I know there's exceptions to that. So, killing a non-combatant, Killing them without any chance to defend them, killing them without any chance of retribution. It's basically like the most dishonorable thing possible. In addition to the fact that you killed their goddamn children. 
So you can see how this is just this horrifying thing to both sides. And that leads to the concept of vengeance. Now, before I really talk about vengeance, though, I want to talk about killing. Now, I usually make a very clear distinction between murder and killing. Most people do, although I've noticed most people's variation in the definitions between one and the other change based on the opinions of the individual. Um, I, I imagine most of you actually have a different opinion on this than I do, just because, again, I've, I've seen that. Um, for me, killing is more about the literal act of taking a life. Regardless of circumstance, it's, it's the baseline, right? Murder will always be killing, but killing is not always murder kind of a situation, right? Whereas murder is more uh, maliciously intended, directly involved, you know, you, I am going after you to kill you because screw you, or whatever, right? I also usually define murder, murder, excuse me, as not having sufficient justification for it. For example, threatening to kick a kid off a cliff down to his death because he more or less accidentally trespassed into your territory. <laughs> you know, I, I know I'm never letting that go, for those of you who get the reference. Um, you know, that would be murder. But if you're in a massive battle with a bunch of enemy combatants and someone comes at you and you swing your sword at them and kill them, that's killing. You with me? Now, there's some grays in the middle, but I bring this up because Kira mentions specifically killing. Kira talks about how she had to kill during the occupation and how it made her uncomfortable to think about it and how she, she lost a bit of herself doing it. Now, I bring that up because it emphasizes something I find very interesting about Kira as a person. Something we've already known, of course, but something that is re-emphasized here because what Kira did was, at least functionally, justified. We can say with high certainty that most of the times that Kira killed it was in self-defense or out of necessity, that it was not murder. You with me? Despite that, despite the necessity, despite the pragmatism of it, it still bothers her. That's important because what Jadzia Dax wishes to do to the albino is quite arguably justified. This man is quite literally a murderer. He murdered three innocent children. Just bam. That as, as, as presented, there's no arguing this baseline. And thus his death, his killing, is far more justified, despite the far more deliberate intent and action. This is why I say definitions tend to vary, because they're specifically going here to kill him, which some people would qualify as murder. You with me so far? Anyways, I'm getting off topic. So despite the justification of this, it is still seen as something that is not good. And I like that. And I, and I enjoy that. It's a little bit hurt by the fact that they kill like 20 guys on their way through there, but you know, whatever. They're, they're nameless mooks, they don't matter. <clears throat> but I want to bring up the concept of vengeance. That's the other topic I wanted to mention here. Vengeance is one of the easiest things to understand and one of the hardest things to control. Because vengeance is all about emotion. Vengeance, so I usually define it, there's justice, revenge, and vengeance. Now, I'm not going to go into the specific definitions here because it's, it's, it's extensive. This is a long topic. I've talked about this over on Babylon 5, for example. But vengeance is usually about the emotional need to react to hurt. In other words, vengeance can easily dip into malice, but is not necessarily driven by it. Vengeance, in my experience, especially when it comes to fiction, is usually more directly driven by you. It's not so much, I hate you and want to kill you. It's, 
you have hurt me so much, I want to kill you. Well, that's a key distinction there, and it adds to why it is so relatable to understand the, the concept of vengeance. It's, it's incredibly easy to explain. I'll explain it to you right now. Think about someone you care about, okay? They've just been killed in cold blood by that random stranger over there. I, I, nothing else needed. That is all that is needed in order to understand the concept of vengeance. So we see how much this burns in her. The sh she even is willing to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Cisco on this one. Which brings up an interesting point, by the way, because Cisco actually understands the concept of vengeance very well. Um, it's just his is a little less personal. And I suppose that makes sense. Because, as weird as this may sound, Sisko's vengeance is, of course, against the Borg. But the Borg aren't really the same as other things, and in a good way. But it means it's not like he can point to you know, evil Bob over there and say, You, you killed my wife, and you cost me my ship, and you destroyed my life. No, the Collective did. So he had the concept of vengeance, but because it was against what is effectively a system, a society even... He redirected this, his energies of that vengeance towards trying to push back against that system, which will lead to something in the future. But I also mention this because even he was still consumed by that vengeance way back in Emissary. The way he reacted to Picard says everything. Picard was, of course, a victim of the Borg, arguably as much, if not more, than Sisko was. That's debatable, of course. And yet, Sisko still had that need for vengeance against him. It was only his strict uh, sense of responsibility and duty that kept that in check, that brought him down from violent hatred to merely being incredibly rude to a senior officer. And that's why I find it weird that Sisko looks at this and is like, this makes no sense and I don't understand it. Because he should. Because he did. Anywho, <clears throat> so then there's the scene, I've actually kind of skipped past this, forgive me. There's the scenes where Dax convinces all three of them to let them go. This is another example of Terry Farrell being allowed to stretch a little bit. You know, she's shown sorrow, she's shown anger, she's shown you know, the, the uncertainty and the fear. And now she gets to basically approach each of them in a different way. She goes to Kor first. She pokes at his past and his pride, being unafraid to shame him but also simultaneously just as eager to praise him, pricking him in just the right way to provoke him into action. Then she goes to Koloth. Now, Koloth tries to talk her down, but Koloth is not a talker. That's not what he's about. And so Koloth immediately is just, ah, be gone, whatever. And so she grabs a batleth and starts fighting him because Koloth understands actions and combat. And she even praises him right before it. You would never, your hand would never slip. And indeed, he comes pretty close to actually injuring her there. Finally, we get Kang. Kang, she is very direct and very oppositional. By which I mean, she doesn't give him an inch. She doesn't compromise at all. She just says, this is what's happening. And she provokes him and provokes him until finally he acquiesces to it. In what is effectively a fit of anger. As a quick aside, we hear that Curzon Dax did several uh, relations, di diplomatically speaking, with the Klingons. It is left somewhat in the air, 
But I find myself wondering how much Curzon was involved, or I, I should say, responsible for the increased diplomatic connections between Starfleet and between the Klingons, since we know that that was not actually fully codified until the loss of the Enterprise C. Anywho. So then, we're actually kind of at the end of the episode then. They go after the Albino, which I have a couple things to say, and they have, use some strategy, which I have a couple things to say. So, the Albino is an interesting character to me. He has extremely little uh, screen time and effectively no establishment. And yet what we do see is very efficient in the way they portray him. The moment the explosion happens, he says, all right, we have to do this. They're finally here. Our weapons don't work. And he immediately, ah, okay, look for a cloaked ship. It's probably hitting us with Tetrion beams. Get out there and hand-to-hand. If our comms don't work, walk out there and talk to them yourselves, blah, blah, blah. He gets on top of the situation almost immediately. It, it portrays someone who is very smart, but also very on edge. You gotta get this sense that the albino has been very tense for the last however many years it's been at this point. He also comes across as an incredibly selfish bastard. Uh, that particular type of slime villain, usually I qualify this as a type 3. Someone who is just fully interested in themselves and absolutely nothing else, and sees no problem in discarding, hurting, or otherwise injuring those around them, because screw them. Unfortunately, it does kind of raise an eyebrow how the albino is apparently incredibly well-connected and well-influenced, and still has his own private little fortress in hiding, despite everything, in the Briar Patch, apparently. Um, there, there's holes there that I wish could be fixed, but what can you do? All we, the basic impression I get from this is, this is a crime lord. Someone who still has access, connections, and power and influence. And, of course, probably has tons of money still lying around. So, though he remains in hiding, I get the very strong impression he is still active in order to be able to support himself. I mean, he has a private army there. Well, a very, very small army, like uh, like uh, two platoons, maybe. But still, for Star Trek standards, that's huge. <laughs> I also find it interesting that, officially, we never learn his race. When I was younger, I just automatically assumed he was an albino Klingon. Then I later learned that they never really specified that on purpose. There was some original documentation about that in one direction and the other, but they never really codify what he is. Funnily enough, the only ever other real significant point of evidence on this is actually in Star Trek Discovery regarding the natural bias against albino Klingons, which, whatever... Um, I like to think that he is a Klingon personally because it adds an extra layer to the overall tragedy of this sequence of affairs. The last thing I want to talk about, uh, there's some good stuff, you know. The Klingons talk about strategy. I, I was originally going to have a whole discussion here about strategy versus honor. I've decided not to because it was all a scam and frankly we have better places to talk about that later. Gowron, excuse me. But what I do want to talk about is how awesome Koloth was for pretty much the whole battle. We don't know if he's actually here. I'll go ask somebody then. And then he goes and asks a very helpful scout if, if he's here. It's just good. I also like their strategizing session they have, both on the ship and down on the planet. Both of them feel technobabble light and sense-making, right? There's, there's some good actual logic there that makes you believe that this is actually a plan for an actual battle of attack. Then the battle happens. It's cool. There's this great scene where the door busts open and the four of them are there. That was awesome. Koloth is the first to go down. Now, 
That makes a lot of sense to me. Remember I mentioned Koloth was courage amongst the three. He's the one who, would, who, who char charged in there and just did things. He's the one who action was what actually motivated him. And thus he is effectively the front line. He is the tank and he is the first to fall. What I also love, though, and it's a small little touch, is that Koloth does not allow himself to relax and die until Kor informs him, in no uncertain terms, that his legacy and his story will be passed on. And knowing that, he then lets himself go. Once again, by the way, another example of Kor being more observant than he puts on. He knew exactly what to say to Koloth, to satisfy his friend and to allow him to pass peacefully. Kang is, is brought down, of course. And what's funny is Kang, for all his power, who basically is overpowering the hell out of the albino in a fight, loses because he actually loses a bit of his sword. And he actually gets shocked at this. Like, this, this failed me? And then he gets stabbed. And that brings me to an interesting scene. So Dax shows up, Judzia Dax, and has the blade at, his, at the albino. And the albino does a stupid thing. He starts, you know, speechifying. Although functionally there's nothing else he could do in that moment. So I can't say it's stupid. But anyways, he starts speechifying. And then Kang stabs him. What looks like in like the, the kidney. Which, trust me, that hurts a lot. So, <laughs> you know, the albino dies. And Kang, having you know, accomplished this, satisfied with his vengeance, dies. Leaving only Kor and Jadzia. Now, there's been a question that's cycled many times. Now, I've heard some people automatically assume that Jadzia was incapable of doing the killing blow and that Kang took it from her. But I've also heard some people assume that what Kang said was right. That she, I mean, she was, she was in a perfect position to see Kang and that he was probably getting up and getting his knife. So she would know Kang was going for the kill and thus could have been quite literally saving it for him. But we don't actually know. And I rewatched that scene a couple times. There's not really any strong evidence one way or the other. It is entirely possible she was unable to actually take a life face to face without self-defense. You know, without just the, the bloodlust of battle. And it is also entirely possible that this was fully justified revenge. And that she was willing to allow Kang to be the one to get the killing blow as an honor to her old friend. A real honor, not fake honor. I don't know. And as ever, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on this. For now, that is actually all I got to go on. So I will be seeing you guys next time with the Maquis.